Hey, grab your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 1. Once you find that, keep your finger there and then find Luke chapter 9. So we're taking just a quick, short break from Genesis. Uh, we're just doing a three-week uh, Advent uh, Christmas season sermon series. So this is our second week in that. Uh, last week, Jeremy took a look at uh, Mary's Magnificate or Mary's Song. If you guys weren't here for that, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that. It was really, 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 really good um, and encouraging. So this week, we are going to keep plunging through Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ. And it should be a good time. Let's open with some prayer. Lord, I pray that we could just relax right now. Uh, Just the busyness of life, just even the craziness of trying to get to church, especially when you have kids, it's pretty stressful. And then, you know, talking to people and just being here, God, it can can sometimes be kind of crazy. And sometimes we just are going through the motions. But Lord, right now with our Bibles open, pray we would just calm down. Take a second. Father, that you would help us open our hearts. We're not interested in information for the sake of information this morning. God, we're, we're interested in heart change and life change and life transformation. God, I'm so excited to look at this song of Zechariah this morning. I pray that you would open up the truths, open up the depths of it in such a way, Lord, that, again, wouldn't just fill our heads, but would change our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come into this room right now? Would you meet us, Lord, as we seek to listen, we seek to hear, God? Thank you for the beautiful sound of the rain on the roof. God, what a reminder of the fact that your grace pours out like rain every day. Lord, thank you so much for the life that's in you, Jesus. We just pray that we would drink from that well, that well of eternal life this morning. You are the good shepherd. You're the one that has answers for our problems. You're the one that has relief for our strains and our stresses. So God, I just pray this morning we would breathe in grace and breathe out our sinfulness, our doubt, our fears, our anxieties. God, just help us to sit at your feet Jesus, our rabbi, our shepherd, speak to us and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in Luke 1, but I just want, just briefly, in Luke chapter 9, in verse 46, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You know, we all ask it, don't we? We all ask the question, Am I going to do something great in my life? Am I going to do something noteworthy? Am I going to do something that's going to matter? Or am I just going to be really someone who lives in relative obscurity and doesn't make a big difference, doesn't make a big change in the world, just kind of do life? It's a question that every human asks. Will I do great things or will I not do great things? Will I do anything? (laughs) Will I live my life uh, just as another person? Or will I make a change? The disciples um, are arguing about whether or not they're going to do something great. And, and not just about whether they're going to do something great, but about who's going to do the greatest thing. Um, and this is what we do as humans. Now, you can imagine why they'd be arguing about this. You know, Jesus uh, is the Messiah. He shows up on the scene. They've been waiting for the Messiah since literally the creation uh, account. And here he is. He's showed up and, and he picks 12 guys to be his core team, to be his kind of fundamental leaders of this new life, this new organization. And he's doing all kinds of crazy things and miracles and stuff is happening. And you can imagine these guys are thinking, well, I wonder which one's going to be his right-hand guy. I wonder which one's going to do the most amazing things. I wonder which of us are going to do the most miracles or maybe have the biggest impact or effect on, uh, on the mission. And so they start arguing about it, you know? 
Like you do, and like like my kids do. You know, they argue about who's better and who gets to go, you know, eat first and whatever. I mean, there's just natural, uh, you know, natural human tendencies. But what I love is that Jesus, he, he takes a little bit of a different approach to how he handles it than what we might think. So take a look at it. So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So here's what's interesting to me about this. Jesus doesn't condemn their question. He doesn't condemn it. He questions their question. He questions their definition of greatness. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't desire to be great. Don't desire to do great things. That's pagan. That's carnal. That's evil. We don't desire to do great things. No, he doesn't do that. He actually allows it. But he says, let me just redefine for you what great actually is. I actually don't think that we should really strive to do anything other than great things. Don't you think? I mean, I mean, don't you think God created that sense in us that sort of wants to achieve great things and see things happen in life? I mean, is that, is that sinful? Is that carnal? Well, it could be. But it all comes down to what your definition of greatness is. It comes down to what you think it is to be great and what, and what you think it is to make an impact or to change or affect change. Go back over now to, to Luke 1. This is where we're going to spend our, our time this morning. This morning, I want to ask a question with you. And the, and the question is, what is greatness? And how do we know if we've attained it? Or how do we know if we're on the right track for it? And my desire, my hope would be that you guys will go away uh, this morning having a desire for greatness, but having directed that desire to the right avenue, having defined it correctly, having understood greatness correctly, amen? So we're gonna dig into this song from Zechariah. And really, a little bit of background on the, the, this, this song before we get into it. It's gonna help kind of understand some of the moving pieces of it. This is kind of a weird passage. This is actually an Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament. Isn't that weird? It's an Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament. Maybe you're saying, well, how is it an Old Testament prophecy if it's in the New Testament? Well, because, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but the New Covenant didn't really start until Jesus came back from the dead, right? Went to the cross, came back from the dead, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father and took his seat at the right hand of power. That's when the New Covenant started. So really, Jesus, even when he was walking and when he was talking, everything he did, he was actually between ages, and so Zechariah, in this moment, who's the father of John the Baptist, when he prophesies, he still has a forward look to Jesus that has yet still not gone to the cross. The kingdom of God has still not yet come in, in the way that it would. So it's an Old Testament prophecy in that it's looking back. But what it really is, it's not just a prophecy. It's actually a song. Okay, it's really, it's really a song. And, and, and this, is, this is classic. You know, um, we kind of laugh when we watch musicals. We think... Um, how unrealistic, you know, when, when guy meets girl and they fall in love and, and then the, the romance starts to swirl and all of a sudden the guy in tights, you know, because they're always wearing tights in musicals. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, <laughs> if you're a dude, I don't know. Um, just saying, you know, this is a workout tights. Okay, anyways. And then he just bursts into song, right? It's like the, the emotion is flowing and the, the excitement is, wells up and then, oh, you know, the song starts. I'll spare you. Um, I almost was going to go for it, but, uh, you know, and we think, oh, that's so silly. But you know what's funny? That's what they do in the Bible. That's what they do in the Bible. That's what Mary did last week, remember? She, she like, the Lord visits her through an angel and gives her the good news that she's going to bear the Messiah and he's going to redeem her people, and she just bursts into song, and we call it the Mag Magnificat, right? It's, it's in Luke chapter 1, uh, the song of Mary. It's incredible. And the same thing happens here. Zechariah, he's in the temple, and an angel appears to him, similar to Mary, and he lets Zachariah know that even in his old age, that him and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And it's not going to be the baby Jesus, it's not going to be the Messiah, but it's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's going to be the one that ushers in uh, sort of the, 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 the way maker for the Messiah and his ministry. Okay, now, Zachariah's story is a little bit different than Mary, because Zachariah was a little more thick. Okay, he, he didn't believe it at first. He's like, this can't be right. I'm old. My wife's old. You've got to be mistaken. You've got the wrong person. Okay? Zechariah, he's doing his deal at the temple. He's burning incense. He was a priest. He was an old man. And he goes, this can't be. How could we possibly bring forth a child, right? I need a sign. I need proof. 
And, and I think I could just see the angel kind of insulted, sitting there, like being an angel, standing before Zachariah, like, you need proof? Like, what about me? What do I look like? Chopped liver, right? Like, he's like, I literally sit in the presence of God, and you need a sign. So Zachariah, at that point, is no longer able to speak uh, until the baby is born, until John the Baptist um, is born. Okay, so he's, he's forced to be in silence. So what happens, though, is Zachariah literally... Um, after the baby is born and he goes to the eighth, on the eighth day to circumcise the baby, which I would imagine he's kind of nervous about because it was the father's job while the baby was being circumcised to sort of do this um, recital type of thing where the person doing the circumcision would say particular words and then the father was to respond to those words and acknowledge those words back kind of like at a wedding when you say who gives this bride to be with his groom and then the, it's the father and the mother's job to say her mother and I do or whatever. There's kind of a scene like that in the circumcision service and Zachariah is freaking out because he can't talk. What's he going to do, right? And, and, and then meanwhile, too, all of the, the, the village people and all the family are deciding for themselves what they're going to name um, John the Baptist. They said, well, let's name him Zachariah after his father. And of course, Zachariah said, no, the angel told me to name him John. So it's in this moment that John, or Zachariah, pardon me, grabs uh, a tablet and he writes down, no, his name is John. In that moment, his tongue is loosed. He's able to talk and write when he's able to talk, just like a good musical, he bursts into song. It's pretty cool, right? He bursts into prophecy. Now, I have to explain something to you too, by the way. Understanding the, the, the majesty and, and the, the power of this prophecy, it, it comes only if you understand the silence that preceded it. Silence is a crazy thing, right? Um, when, when, when you don't talk to someone for a while, it creates strain on the relationship, doesn't it? I mean, you ever have a, a time where you're just not doing a very good job communicating with your spouse and, and then you start to feel like you have um, all of this, you know, these issues and you think, well, what's wrong? Well, we're not communicating, right? We're not communicating. Or, or maybe you have a friend that just gives you the cold shoulder. They don't talk to you for a really long time. You know, well, Israel had basically been in 400 years of silence with God. God hadn't spoke prophetically in 400 years. And a lot of history happened in that time. You know, a lot of different empires came and took over Israel. They went from, from the hand of this emperor and empire to the hand of that empire. And now here they are sitting under Rome, uh, this massive empire, um, being, you know, basically captives again. And God hasn't spoke for 400 years. And so when this angel comes to Zechariah and he bursts into a prophecy, and the Bible literally calls it a prophecy, verse 67, he bursts into this prophecy, it's the first word, the first public word of God in 400 years. Isn't that incredible? And you might ask, um, why would God be silent for 400 years? Like, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he speak to Israel and be like, don't worry, just another 100 years and the Messiah will come. Don't worry, just another 50 years and the Messiah will come. Don't worry. I mean, 400 years of silence, does it seem a little weird to you that God would do that? But, I, you know, I do this, I just would suggest this to you because, I don't know, maybe you're feeling like that. Maybe you're feeling like, you know, I haven't heard God speak. I don't feel the Lord anymore. I don't feel like God is working. I don't know what he's telling me. I don't know what he's leading me to do. And maybe that's frustrating for you, but I would just suggest something to you. And that is that when, when my kids are fighting and when my kids aren't listening, you know what I've learned not to do is to get really loud. I go, hey, cut it out. I want to do that. I like doing that. It fulfills my flesh, right? Um, I get louder than them, and then they just kind of ignore me. It's like I just become part of the noise. But what I found actually is if I get quieter, strangely, my kids listen to me more. I go, hey, come here. And then I kind of just whisper and they're like, they listen. Because they're like, oh, dad never, he's always yelling. He must be saying something important. <laughs> uh, you know, and so, the, and they listen. Same thing is true of preaching, by the way. If you, if, you, if you really want people to listen, you actually talk really quiet. And everybody kind of goes like this. It's kind of funny to watch. Um, talk loud, they kind of go, whoa. So here's what I think is happening. For 400 years, God is getting Israel to go like this. To lean in. They're ready. They want to hear. Now, the Pharisees certainly don't want to hear. They, they don't want the light. But there is a group, a remnant of true Israel, Simeon, Elizabeth, John, Mary, and they're leaning in, and they're waiting. When is God going to speak? And he does, and he does speak, and he delivers, and he delivers through 
Jesus, this baby, and then, and then the forerunner of the baby, John the Baptist. It's really a beautiful thing. So it's with that backdrop that, that we read what is called the Benedictus. If you want to sound smart, you could write that down, the Benedictus. It's where you take eggs, and you take uh, an English muffin, and you put hollandaise sauce on it. No, okay. Uh, everybody laughed in the first service. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> Jeez, different kind of humor in this service. Okay, all right, whatever. Don't throw eggs at my Benedictus joke. <laughs> oh, okay, that was good. Anyways, I don't even know what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, it's called the Benedictus because Benedictus is Latin for blessing. And the first line that um, Zechariah gives is he blesses the Lord. And he's actually blessing the Lord. He's also blessing John the Baptist. And if you look at it, you'll see in verse 67 through 75, he's blessing the Lord. And then in verse 76 to 79, he's blessing his son, John the Baptist. And in doing so, he's also prophesying. He's also speaking forth the very words of God here. And it's really a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Now, before I read it, um, you know, when we think about Old Testament prophecy, we think, first of all, it's all about God just telling us what's going to happen in the future. And that's really a wrong way to read prophecy, biblical prophecy, especially Old Testament prophecy. Like if you're reading the book of Jeremiah and you're just like looking for anything that you can go watch Fox News and figure out what it is, you know, it, it, that's, that's the wrong way to read the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were poetry. Okay? Yes, they have some futuristic elements. And yes, they do tell what's going to happen ultimately. But they were meant to, um, in a poetic way, capture the minds and the hearts and the eyes of Israel in order to bring them back to a place of repentance. And the, the poetic imagery is dripping on it. It's, it's, you know, before they had TV, it's almost like watching a play. I mean, the prophets use all of this language that would set off triggers in the, um, in the ears of the Old Testament audience. And that's exactly what Zechariah does. This is a very Old Testament-like prophecy or like song um, here. And in order to understand it, we really need to let it hit us. We need to let the feelings that this is meant to provoke come out in us. And we need to understand what some of these things um, would have triggered, the feelings that they would have triggered in the, the original audience that heard it. So let's read it together. Luke 1, 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, the, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking now to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, this is beautiful, from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Isn't that beautiful? It's a poetry. It's, it's a song. It's meant to be felt. It's meant to create imagery in your mind that, that makes you feel a particular thing. What do you think this is supposed to make you feel? Is it dread? I think it's hope, anticipation. Joy, consummation, fulfillment, resolve. These are the things that this poetry, this prophetic song is meant to evoke in you. And the child, verse 80, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So let's go back through that a little bit because I, there's a few things here that, that you, being someone in 2020, living in Grants Pass, um, wouldn't naturally pick up on that would have struck a heartstring with a Hebrew audience, a particularly an Old Testament Hebrew audience. And I need you guys to understand that. So just note really quick five things here in the ministry of Jesus, five things in the ministry of Jesus that Zechariah um, is teaching us. And really what he's doing is he's teaching us some things about God through his description of the ministry of Jesus. He's teaching some things about God through the description of the ministry of Jesus. Five things in particular. First, He's teaching us that God is the God who shows up. He is a God who shows up. Take a look at verse 68. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Okay, that word visited right there, is that kind of funny? What does he mean by that? Like you visited. You know, I think the word visited, I think of like going to my grandma's house. You know, like I drop by, I'm just kind of visiting, like, hey, just here to hang out. Is that what God's doing here? Is that what God's done in, in, in bringing um, his son into this world is just a quick visit? Is that what God is? I mean, are we deists? Does God live off in, you know, off in the spiritual realm and every once in a while just drops by for a cookie? I mean, is that how God works? Like, what does Zechariah mean that he's visited? Okay, now again, this would be lost on us. We wouldn't catch this, but for the Hebrew hearer that's, that's listening to this prophecy, they hear that word visited, they immediately go to all of the places in the Old Testament where God redeemed and showed up to insert himself into the story. When it says that God visited, it means that God showed up. It means that he, the narrator, stepped out of the seat of the author and into the play itself. Put down his clipboard and put on human flesh and stepped in. Every time God would redeem Israel, he would do it by stepping into the picture. You know who the star of the Old Testament is? It's God. It's not David. It's not Abraham. It's not Solomon. If anything... The Old Testament stands as an indictment against man's ability to save man. You know who the star of the Old Testament is? God. Yahweh saves his people. He shows up. He's the God that shows up. I mean, you know, he, he, he sends people in to do his work, but he is ultimately the one involved. I've been reading the, the Narnia books, which I would highly recommend if you guys, and they're not just for kids, by the way, they're, they're fantastic. And C.S. Lewis, being a believer, I mean, he was trying to typify all of these gospel realities in his books. And in every one of his books, he always shows how Aslan, who is the creator of Narnia, if you go back and read the first book, you see where he creates, he actually sings Narnia into existence. All throughout each book, Aslan makes these appearances. And, 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 and not, the characters don't always know it's him, and they don't even know who he is. In fact, the, the third book I'm reading right now, The Magician's Nephew, um, there's this boy who doesn't even really know who Aslan is, and, and, and Aslan keeps showing up in these different forms. He shows up as a lion chasing him, and he thinks he's trying to eat him, and then he shows up as a cat, and then he shows up all these different things. And then at the end of the book, it's this beautiful moment where he thinks this lion's been out to get him, but in reality, the lion was actually protecting him. And he was intrinsically involved in every detail all along the way. God is the God who shows up. He doesn't just stand afar and say, hey, you fix your problems. He comes into the narrative. He's the God that visits his people. And Zechariah, I mean, he can't possibly even understand just how much that's true. Because literally God himself has become part of his creation, stepped into his creation in order to redeem it from the inside out. It's beautiful. So he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, and second word, redeemed, and redeemed his people. Okay, he's not only the God who shows up, secondly, note this, he's the God who pays up. He's the God who shows up, he's also the God who pays up. You know, that word redeem or redemption, uh, it's lost on us because we've heard it too much. It's the problem with language. We use words a lot. They start to lose their power. Okay, and, and we think about the word redemption. We go immediately to the cross, right? We, yep, yep, Jesus, he's the redeemer. But remember, the person hearing this prophecy, they don't know about the cross yet. So what, what are they thinking when they hear the word redeemed? Well, the Hebrew word redeemed is actually, or redeemer, I should say, is actually goel, G-O-E-L, the goel. You should note it. It's an amazing thing. You'll start to see it all throughout the Old Testament. The Goel was the redeemer. God is in the business of redemption. He is a God who redeems, and he loves to see other people redeem. That's what he does, okay? What redeem means, essentially, is to buy something back. It's to pay a price. In the Old Testament law, God created a system within Israel where if someone, for whatever reason, had to, say, sell themselves into slavery, and you say, well, why would you have to do that? Well, because you can't file bankruptcy, so if you can't pay your debts, guess who pays the debts? You do by selling yourself. So if someone sells themselves into slavery, it is the job of their closest kinsmen to become the goel, the redeemer for that family member, and to go buy them back. And the person that they sold themselves to has to sell them back and, be, and allow them to be redeemed by their family member. It's called the kinsman redeemer, the goel. We see that show up in other places uh, like Ruth. Ruth um, needed to be redeemed. She needed to be, she needed to be uh, married by a closest of kin. That was, that was the law. 
It was a way that God created to create justice uh, and to, to, to create a safety net for catching people in culture that, that maybe were taken advantage of or had fallen out. So your job as a family member would be to become the goel in different circumstances. One of those circumstances, interestingly, um, was called the Hadam Goel. The Hadam Goel actually means the avenger of blood. Isn't that cool? Uh, so if somebody kills somebody else in your family, your job as the closest relative is to go be the avenger of blood and to make sure that justice is carried out. That's part of the idea of being a redeemer. Okay? So that's all, that's all understood by this audience. That wouldn't have been lost on them. So when Zechariah stops here and he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and he has become our Goel. He has become our redeemer. Now flip over really quickly with me to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. Whose job was it to redeem? It was the family member's job, right? Why? Because it's their responsibility. It's their family. But listen to what God says to Israel. In Isaiah 41, I'm part, pardon me, 43, 43 verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. In other words, I've, I've become your Goel. I have called you by name, you are mine. I have called you by name and you are mine. Why is God becoming the redeemer of Israel? Because they're his. Because he's called them by name. They're his kids. He has redeemed them because he says, you're mine. I love that he calls them by name. You know, the craziest thing happens when you're called by name. Like Bruce. Bruce, I love you, dude. I'm so thankful for I wish you would stop going to Alaska because we miss you. Every time you leave, we just miss you. Okay, now, right, right, everyone? Okay, that's prophetic. All right, take that. Um, thus saith, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, what happens when your name gets called out of a crowd? You instantly go from feeling like you're just part of a group to being important, to being specific. Someone's calling you, they're, they're ascribing something directly to you. What God is saying right here is he's saying, Israel, you are mine. You're my kids. I'll call you by my name. I mean, I... I remember when my daughter was going to school last year, she was in kindergarten, and, uh, it, you know, <laughs> my favorite part of the day sometimes was to go and to pick her up from school, and there's just this mob of kids, this was before COVID, uh, there's this mob of kids, right, coming out, and I see them all, and yeah, they're cute, whatever, but what am I looking for? I'm looking for my daughter, because she's mine. I gave her her name, and I call her by name, and my favorite thing ever is when she has a big smile. And she sees me and she runs to me. What God is saying here is he's saying, you're mine. I'm your Goel. I'm your kinsman redeemer. I have called you by name. And this, this is what Zachariah is worshiping God about right now. He's saying, Lord, you have visited your people and you have redeemed. You've called us by name. God didn't forget his kids. He didn't forget Zechariah is rejoicing. So, you know, we miss that stuff, but in reality, when Zechariah would have been singing this, the, the crowd who was gathered here um, during the circumcision, they would have known, they would have thought immediately of Ruth and Boaz. They would have thought of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea continually called to go and purchase back his, his wife who was giving herself away to other men continually. They would have thought of all that. I love, by the way, I don't know if you notice this or not, but I love that Zachariah says everything in the past tense. Do you notice that? Hasn't even happened yet. Wait a minute, there's just a baby. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. Death hasn't been defeated. He hasn't been crucified, resurrected, ascended, sat at the right hand of the Father. But listen to what Zachariah is saying. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed as though it already happened. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's incredible. I mean, he sees it as being past tense. Why is that? It's, well, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Remember when God created the heavens and the earth? And we talked about how he spoke to create. And we said, well, why did he speak to create? It's because his word and his work are the same thing. If God says it, it's done. Now, it may not have happened yet, but it will. If God says it, it's done. Notice here, he says, 
He has raised up a horn of salvation. Horn, by the way, is uh, Old Testament symbolism for power. Okay, so think of like a steer or a, um, not a steer, think of a bull, a bull that has a horn. So you read the book of Daniel, you see all of these different empires and they're typified, or the emperors are typified by, um, by horns. Okay, so he's saying this horn is raised up, raised up meaning God has already redeemed, but yet he's still raising up the baby that's going to do it. I love that. God is both doing it and going to do it at the same time. Let me see if I can explain this better. So you ever look at a mountain range and, and, and from a distance, they look like they're all lined up in a row. Boom, 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 boom. Mountain, 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 mountain. But then as you drive closer to the mountain range, what do you start to realize? They're actually not lined up next to each other. There's one closer and one's farther and there's gaps in between. It just looks like they're all together. So from Zechariah's vantage point, when he says God has redeemed, he has raised up a horn, a powerful person of salvation from the house of David. And, and we go, yeah, but in his moment, there was just a baby. He's looking at the completed thing. He's seeing the power of Christ. He's seeing Revelation 1 in many ways. He's seeing that Christ will take his throne. Christ will redeem. But the reality is, as you get closer, there are gaps there. We stand between one of those gaps, don't we? Jesus' is first coming and his second coming. We stand between those two. But what I want you to see here is that from God's vantage point, it's already done. This is actually almost every Old Testament prophecy about Christ, if you go and look at him, is almost always in the past tense. Look at Isaiah 53. Okay, surely he has borne our griefs. He has. This is 700 years before Christ. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Why is he saying Has. It's like Isaiah is looking back into the past and seeing something that already happened. Because if God said it, then it's done. That's why we believe the gospel. Because the gospel is the good news that God did it. He said it, and his saying it is as good as doing it. He said he's coming back, he's coming back. Okay, and he's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as the horn of salvation, the great Davidic, messianic, colonel, general type figure who is literally going to kick butt and take names and set up a kingdom forever on this earth. Now, what's interesting to me is that how Zachariah is getting all that. I mean, he's sitting here looking at a baby and probably another baby and going, these are just babies. How could these possibly be the redemption, the, the horn of salvation for Israel? But God takes the weak things, he takes the small things, he takes the powerless things, and he raises those up to overtake the powerful things. It's how he works. It's always how he's worked. You know, the, the, the picture that David is of Christ is beautiful. I've just been reading through uh, the book of Samuel, and it's always just struck me how Saul was really the man. I mean, he was the man. He was a foot taller than everybody else. He was strong. He had the guns. You know, he had the whole deal. He looked like the king. He was a terrible king. Meanwhile, you got this scrawny little kid who's watching sheep. And Samuel anoints David to be the king while Saul's still the king. <laughs> it's, it's confusing. You know, like, wait, Saul's still the king, and now you're anointing this scrawny little kid. But what did God do? He raised up David to be his king. He raised up David to be the man after his own heart. There was a process there that David was part of. But that's how God works. That's how God, he, he raised up. And just like he took this tender root from Jesse, if you're familiar with that passage, uh, he took this tender root in the same way he took a tender um, baby that really can't defend itself, and he turned that into the Messiah that would overcome death and defeat darkness. What a beautiful thing. That's like a movie. It's like the Hobbit, man. It's like, why does God, why, why in the Hobbit is, is he using these these Hobbits, these hobbits, to, to, to redeem and fix all of the problems because that's how God works. Where do you think Tolkien got that idea? God works through the small things. It's astounding. We're so used to it, but it's astounding that God's plan for redemption and the universe came through a baby. It's astounding. But you know what? When you're powerful enough, you don't need to march out your troops when you're powerful enough, when you're sovereign enough, you don't have to flex and show all your strength to make sure that you win. God didn't need to flex. If he needed to flex, he would have. If God wanted to show up and take out Rome, he would have done it. But instead, he's so powerful, he's so in control, he's so sovereign that he defeated death, defeated sin, defeated the enemy through a baby. 
because he's that powerful. He's that sovereign. Amen. Amen? I was thinking about this earlier. My, sometimes I wrestle with my five-year-old, you know? And, uh, and so he just has so, he's a boy, man. He just like wants to punch everything, which is great. I'm like, that's cool, man. Just don't punch your sister, you know? So sometimes I'll be like, all right, man, here's my fist. I'm going to hold it out. You just go to town. You just punch my fist all you want. You can attack it. You can do whatever. And, you know, he's five. He's little. So I'm not really worried about, you know, I'm not worried. Sometimes I'll just kind of not even pay attention. He's over here like, ah, you know, going to town on my fist. I don't need to flex on him. I don't need to show him, hey, don't forget, I could sit on you. You know, why? I don't need to. I have nothing to prove to my son. He knows I'm bigger than him. Right? So, so I can just kind of let, like, like I, I can just let him do that. I just think God is so powerful that he didn't need to send troops. He sent a baby. I just think that's so cool. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. He raises up a horn of salvation. So he's the God who shows up. He's the God who pays up. He's the God who raises up. He's also the God who follows up. It says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. Now, don't miss this. What Zechariah is doing here in this prophecy is he is connecting two realities, and that is all of the old covenant and all of the promises to the patriarchs, the fathers and the prophets, and this new reality of Jesus, the final prophet, and he's saying these two are one thing. The word you need to remember is continuity. There is great continuity between God's redemptive plan all throughout the entire biblical narrative. It's one story. It's one story. Everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled by Christ. He is, he is the fulfillment of all of it. And what I love is how personal God is. Look at this. It says that he, in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This is interesting. It's as though Zechariah is saying that Jesus is God's way of showing mercy to Abraham. But, but Abraham's dead, so what does that, what does that matter? Or, or is he, right? God, still, God sees Abraham and his promises, Abraham, as, as, as though he just did it five minutes ago. Now, we know it was thousands of years ago. God made this promise to Abraham, his friend, his friend, Abraham, and David, his friend. You know, these men, these women, they were friends with God. They were friends with God. Abraham was a friend of God, and, and God promised his friend that through him would come an entire nation, and, and through that nation would, would come a blessing for the whole world. And we think, yeah, that was thousands of years ago. God's on to new things now. And in reality, in God's dimension, he goes, no, I just made that promise. And to show mercy to my friend Abraham, I am now fulfilling that promise. Isn't that amazing? That even if you're dead in the grave, God still sees the promise that he made it to you as though he just made it. He sees... Christ and the fulfillment of everything Christ fulfilled as a way of showing mercy to all of the people that God has loved through the Old Testament. Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment of all that. I just love that. I think that's amazing. He's the God who follows up. You know what I mean by that? He's the God who goes, hey, Abraham, I haven't forgot. Hey, David, I haven't forgot. Hey, Adam, I haven't forgot. Crushing the head of the snake. It's all gonna happen. God's word and his work are synonymous. I can't say that enough. God said it, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Our job is to stand in that gap and believe it. That's the reality. So he's the God that shows up, pays up, raises up, follows up. And lastly, he's the God who frees up. He's the God who frees up. Look at verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What a beautiful explanation of what the new covenant looks like. What is the new covenant? It is that we are free to serve. We're free to serve. And some of you might be thinking, isn't that a contradiction? Free to serve? Isn't servant mean you're not free? Doesn't that mean you're a slave, that you're in control? Not in God's economy. The new covenant frees us up by allowing us to serve our true master. You know, we think sometimes that we're most free when we don't have to serve. 
And we're most free when we have the most control over what we want or what we think or what we, we, we think we want to do. It's not true. It's not true. You know, when you're, when you're no offense, Clayton, when you're in high school, you know, you, you have this idea that, man, if I could just get out from under my parents' thumb, I'd be free. I could start, you know, Clayton would never say this. He's much too mature and wise and godly. But, you know, anyways, I could just get out from underneath my parents' control, then I would be free. But in reality, then you grow up and realize, oh, I'm actually not. You know when you're most free? When you're most submitted. When you're most submitted to the rule of Christ. The reason Christ sets you free is so that you could serve him. Because that's true freedom. When is a fish most free? When it's in the water. When is a human most free? When they're most serving Christ. That's the reality. We were freed freed from our enemies, freed from fear, so that we could serve him in holiness, which is to be set apart, and righteousness, which is to be blameless, before him all our days. We're going to serve him forever. This is good news. So he's also the God who frees up. Now, that's the ministry of Jesus in a nutshell. Isn't that cool? So Zechariah prophesies about the ministry of Jesus, and then he switches in verse 76 to the ministry of John. And listen to what he says about the ministry of John. He says, And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So what is the ministry of John the Baptist. And here's why this matters, okay? In the beginning, I asked you to, to, to think about the question, what is greatness? Okay, what is, what is greatness? W- go with me over really quick to Luke chapter seven. John the Baptist is the key, and if you ever forget this, just remember, John the Baptist is the key to understanding what it is to be great. If you ever want to remember, if you ever forget what greatness is, or you start thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to do great things, just, just, just remember, John the Baptist is the key. So, so in John, uh, pardon me, Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Pardon me. Wait. No, it's 7, 7, 28. Maybe not. Wow, how did I mess this up? I got it right last time. Hmm. I'm just going to give it to you. Here it is. Yeah. 46. You were right. Michael Daniels? Thank you. He was right. I should have just listened to him. <laughs> Luke 9. Stupid. Okay. An argument arose, no, no, this isn't it. We were already here. Good night. 728, it is 728? Should I just listen to myself in the first place? Should listen to my notes? Good grief. I might need to find another vocation. Okay, 728. Oh, there it is, okay. I tell you among those born of women... None is greater than John. Isn't that interesting? What is greatness? Well, apparently it's something about John. John did something that was really great, and, that, and, that, and that's important to recognize. Jesus literally says, the archetypical great person is John. There's never been anyone born of a woman that's greater than John. And I read that, and if I'm just being honest, I mean, John was cool, okay? I mean, nothing against John. You know, he seems like a cool dude. I didn't really know him, but kind of strange. He probably would have been like that guy in town. Everyone's like, that guy is just strange. Um, but really, is he the greatest? The greatest? Like, what about Daniel? Like, Daniel was legit. He stood, he stood toe-to-toe with, with, with kings and empires. I mean, what about Joseph? Like, what about Moses? Moses parted the Red Sea and led Israel through the wilderness. What about, what about Joshua's military colonel? Like, I'm thinking about all these. Like, what about David? These are amazing people. And really, like, John is the greatest up until this point? What what was it about John that was so great? I don't think Jesus is saying that because he just is in the John fan club and because he just thinks John's the greatest thing. 
I think Jesus is trying to teach us something here about what greatness actually is. I tell you among these born of women, none is greater than John. And here's where I think we get the key into what that means. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, that adds some complexity to it. So John's the greatest one born of women, except for anybody who is in the kingdom of God. What does he mean by in the kingdom of God? He means anybody who is now of the body of Christ in the new covenant, now saved uh, and, and part of the, the life of Jesus, okay? So anybody, even the least saint, is greater than John. What? What are you talking about? You're, you're telling me that I am greater than John the Baptist? That just feels weird coming out of my mouth, right? Like, what do you mean? He's John the Baptist. And you just said, of born of women, he's the greatest one. What's going on here? Here's the reality. Okay, now listen. Greatness is not defined by what you do or who you are. It is defined by the, the level to which that you magnify Christ. Why was John so great? Because he had a unique vantage point and a unique ministry in which Jesus was literally right there. He could point to him and go, it's him. And he sure did. He pointed this, behold, the Lamb of God. No one else could do that in the Old Testament. I mean, Isaiah, he wrote of him. Jeremiah prophesied of him. Ezekiel prophesied of him. Daniel prophesied of him. They all said he was coming. Moses said, hey, one like me, he'll come. But none of them actually got to say him. It's him. And that's what made John so great. But yet, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because we, like John, have this incredibly unique ability to what? To testify and point people to the person of Christ. That is greatness. That's greatness. Don't believe me? Fine. Go live your life. Try to be great. Come talk to me in 20 years and tell me how much your life sucks. It's true. Go, go try to be great. Go. It's, it's, you know, talk to Michael Jordan. Talk to all of the greatest people that have accomplished the greatest feats in history. They will tell you that they are depressed and empty and hopeless because that's not greatness. Talk to the people that own the Fortune 500 companies. Talk to the people that, that, that talk, talk to, to, to Bezos and talk to Zuckerberg and talk to whoever and ask them, hey, do you feel like you're great? And in their pride, they might be like, well, yeah, but do you feel like you really have reached it? Have you really? No, you haven't because that's not greatness. Greatness is magnifying the ultimate source of glory in the universe. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's glory in the universe. He is the ultimate language of God's glory in the universe. So if you want to get tuned in to reality, then you can only do that by glorifying Christ. Anything else is empty. It's pointless. That's what greatness is. You know, the, the lost person in this story is the one talking. It's Zachariah, right? Like, think about Zachariah. He's just this old guy. I mean, he's just one of thousands of priests that have lived and come and gone and went into the temple and burned his incense, you know. He's really nobody noteworthy, nobody mentionable. It's kind of a blank piece of paper, you know, just a nobody. But in this moment, he becomes the first prophet to appear in 400 years. First person opens open his mouth to speak for God. What changed? He started talking about Jesus. That's what Zechariah's doing here. He's doing exactly what we're called to do. He's just proclaiming. He's the first preacher of Christ. Isn't that cool? John the Baptist is only eight years old, or eight, eight days old, so he's not, I mean, he jumped in the womb. But, but in reality, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, becomes the first gospeler, the first one to publicly proclaim Christ as the Lord. And now he's forever in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? It's so cool. He became something, not because he did something, not because he realized his, you know, he, he, he embraced his epic and figured out he was an amazing person and figured out that he actually was really good at something and showed his value and none of that. He figured out that Jesus was the Messiah and he proclaimed it and it made him great. Isn't that cool? Okay, let me in with this. Let me in with this. So what? So what does that matter? First of all, I want to say this. Part of the reason 
that we struggle with feeling like we are going to do great things is we don't see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. We, we think great things, and this is, our Western culture is basically spoon-fed this to you, and that, that greatness is based off of what you do in independence. Okay, so whatever you can do in and of yourself, that makes you great. And we're just sold it all the time. We watch the guys on Shark Tank, and they're up there talking about how they made their self-made men, self-made women, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, so we think, oh, greatness is whatever I accomplish. It's not. We've lost the ancient art of realizing that greatness is being part of something great. Man, it's such a joy to be part of something great. I mean, it's a, it's a joy to be part of this church. God, God is doing great things in this church. And the beauty of it is it has nothing to do with me. I just get to be part of it. It's a joy to be part of the kingdom of God. It's great. And, and, and when I start feeling insignificant, you know what it is? It's when I'm looking at myself and I'm thinking, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? When's the last time I led somebody to the Lord? When's the last time I changed that or made a big impact or whatever? That's, I'm thinking about myself. When I zoom out, I think about, wow, I'm part of a big kingdom. And that gives me great significance. I am part of something really amazing. And it's Christ's church. Literally, I, mean, just, I get to be part of it. So I want you to understand that you have a part. Now, you may not like your part, but get over it. That's where God puts you. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not trying to, to, to make light of that. But you may not like your part, but that's your part. And, and, and you're only going to get more miserable if you just sit there complaining about the part you're playing. You're only going to get more joy-filled if you start embracing it and going, thank you that I'm just even part of the play. Thank you that I'm just part of your redemptive work. I'm just so glad to be here. Just glad to be on the team, man. And listen to me. Your part is more often than not, it is in your limitations, not beyond your limitations. Again, we've been lied to, guys. We've been told that we will really be great once we get over our limitations, whatever the thing is that's holding us back. That's why people leave their spouse. That's why people leave their kids. That's why people walk away from their families because they've been told that they would be more great being successful than they would be staying put. That they, they'd, be more, they'd be more great if they could just get out of their limitations. Okay, but here's the reality. All three of these men, Jesus, John the Baptist, Zechariah, their lives are dripping with limitations. John the Baptist didn't even get to live to see Jesus go to the cross. He lost his head. His life was a limitation. He was, he was basically born right into a Nazarite vow. A guy lived in the desert and ate locusts. He never had a family. His life was one big limitation. He got all these disciples. He got all this influence, and then he just gave it away. He told his disciples to go follow Jesus. Do you know most of the disciples of Jesus were actually disciples of John? And he was fine with that. He was Zachariah, man. I mean, the guy lived his whole life without any kids. He lived his whole life in obscurity. His whole life was a limitation. His life is probably about to end. He probably didn't even live to see John grow up. Okay, so, so the reality, though, is, is, is you're going to have to, you're at, you're at the crisis point that has to come at some point where you go, either I'm going to embrace that I have these limitations and then begin to realize the joy God has for me within them, or I'm going to keep fighting them. And if you keep fighting them, you miss it. You miss the opportunity to say, okay, Lord, you know, if I could just not have this chronic illness, just think how much I could do for you, Lord. Now, hear me. God may take that chronic illness away from you. I hope he does. Let's pray for it. But God may also say, actually, the most glory for me is if you actually stay in that limitation. You know, if I could just not have to, to be married to that person, that person holds me back. And God would say, or, or, you know, you, you could embrace that limitation and realize that, that I actually want to work through that. I want to work th through that. Jesus' entire life was limitations. He limited his power in order to lean into his humanity. He limited his life to 33 years. He limited his, his vocation. He limited everything he did. Because freedom is not being limitless. Freedom is embracing the limits that God has given you. That's true freedom. The moment you give up the lead role is the moment your show will start. The moment you realize, you know what? Life's not about me. That's really relieving. It's about Christ. 
Let me just end with, with just a couple practical things. I'm just going to throw these out and we'll be done. A couple practical things. How do I live a Christ-exalting, selfless life? Now, I am not an expert at this by any means, okay? But let me just offer some advice. Take it or leave it. How do I become a Christ-exalting, selfless person or live a Christ-exalting, selfless life? First of all, let me suggest this to you. Consider how to shrink your world. I have this theory, and I think that part of the reason that we feel like we are so insignificant all the time is because we're looking at the ocean of the world and we're thinking, well, what difference can I possibly make? You know, we turn on the news and we watch just seven billion people on the earth and we, we see suffering and struggle and hardship and wars and we just think, what can I possibly do to help this? So I'm just gonna do nothing because what does it matter? What, what is what I'm gonna do matter? Well, of course you're gonna feel like your life has no meaning if that's what you're looking at impacting. You're out of your pay grade. You're doing God's job at that point. Let God fix the world. You figure out how to love your neighbor. You figure out how to, who, how to, how to love the person that's in front of you. Shrink your world and realize, hey, I have things to do. Those things are important. Those things matter. I have to feed my family. I'm gonna shepherd and lead the people around me. I'm gonna preach Christ to my neighbor and my coworkers. These are important things. I need to shrink my world and get out of God's economy and get into mine. And start seeing that he has valuable, important things for me to do. Number two, do things that make him look good instead of you. And then practice doing that. It's like a muscle group, you know? you got to practice building the muscle of doing something and then taking no credit for it. In fact, finding a way to show off Christ for it. Practice it. And the same is true of the opposite, by the way. If you practice doing something to get glory for it, you're going to build that muscle. You're going to like the glory. You're going to want more. But if you can find ways to say, I'm going to do this because it's going to make Jesus look really good. Practice that. Practice that. And you're going to find deep joy in that, deep satisfaction in that. And lastly, and this is important, when your impulse is to reach for a narcotic, when you feel like you are not important or you don't have uh, significance, stop, recognize that, and then I want you to reach for the gospel instead. And here's what I mean by that. Okay, you're going to have moments probably before you even walk out of this room, where you feel insecurity come up on you, and you go, you know what? Am I significant? Do I have value? Do I matter? Does my life matter? And you know what you're going to do? You're going to reach for your phone, and you're going to get on social media, and you're going to reach out for that affirmation. Maybe I just need to post a new picture so someone can see how great my life is and tell me that I'm awesome. Or you're going you're gonna to reach for something to dole that. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna want to eat more food than you need to. Or you're going to, whatever it is, you're going to want to find something to deal with the feeling of insignificance that you feel. The feeling of insignificance that you feel is a symptom of a sickness, and the sickness is a failure to believe the gospel. Not to get on social media and get more attention. Not to work hard so your boss tells you you're amazing. Not to do something so that your wife tells you you're the best thing ever. That's all fine. That's not satisfying. That's not satisfying. So I want you to catch yourself doing it. Stop and go, I need to believe the gospel right now. The gospel is that Christ is everything I need. I don't need to go get affirmation. He has enough affirmation for me. And guys, can I just say this? You're gonna have to do that every minute of every day. Because you're human, you're a fallen human. You're gonna feel dissatisfied with your life. And the only way you're going to feel satisfied is if you stop and you eat the bread of life. And you stop and say, Christ, I just need you right now. I just need you. I don't need affection. I don't need attention. I don't need affirmation. I don't even need more purpose or meaning. I, I just need you. There's great joy in that. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this song of Zechariah. I pray it would be a reminder to us, Lord a reminder of what greatness truly is. And God, I pray for this church, Lord, for each of us as we walk out of here, when we start to feel that need to prove something or that need to feel happier or, or more fulfilled, I pray we would stop. And like Zachariah, we would just begin singing or declaring or prophesying the truth of the gospel and that the great joy of that would come and well up in our souls. Jesus, you've done it. You did it all. We don't need anything from this world. You have only to give.
Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you that like John the Baptist, we get to stand as proclaimers, heralders, reminders of what you've done, Jesus. Help us to step into that. Help us to shrink our purview, shrink our world down and see what you're asking us to do. Help us to live within our limitations and say yes to the things that you've put in front of us instead of looking for something else. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.